Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm, uh, yeah, panhandling? Is that still going to be? Doesn't make any sense. And I'm the machine. That has nothing to do with this movie, Dave. That is something we were talking about off mic, so yeah. people have no idea what we're talking about. Just keep but it on mic, yeah. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. You know, the year just so happens to be 2018 this year. We do talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself, and today we get to talk about what many consider should have been named Best Picture of the Year in 2018, Roma. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions, of course, help us continue the show since the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Dave, what are we watching this month? A movie. We are watching the Clint Eastwood movie, oh, yeah. Honky, Honky Tonk, Tonk Man you know, from I was thinking, 1982. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we be watching that when we watch The Mule? Hey, you're the one who made the schedule, Dave. No, I'm you're the one you. that made the schedule. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that. But yeah, we're going to watch Honky Tonk Man. Honky Tonk Man. Yeah, it's going to be good. Can't wait. Three things that Dave loves. Old men, <laughs> country music, <laughs> and small towns. So, I'm sure you're going to have a Five great stars. time. Five stars. Dave, we have a big movie to talk about here this week. So, we're going to forego our deep and rich fiction that, of course, everyone oh, tunes in for every week. People are going to be so disappointed. Something that we have to talk about that happened. You know, we did that long car ride last week at yes. delivery before we we were in the car know, pay off that that huge plot point um mm-hmm. we have jordan drake here joining us thank you jordan but i want i wanted the fiction yeah. that's what i was here was <laughs> for the continued narrative for? how did he get in the car i, I just told to- you i was gonna get us in here and then just find out what's going on and then i was just gonna drop off the call i mean really oh, who wants no, to discuss you, movies you have to wait until next week just like everyone else so you are here to, of course to fill us in on this film roma directed by alfonso cuaron and um i say we we jump right into it here uh going into like our history this is why i gave me that shitty text eh jordan he's a fucking rush where's the fire that's outside of the fiction of the show it was a terribly shitty text that (laughs) was sent immediately before this started awful why aren't you here a a level of unparalleled bitchiness i've never seen between Two professional pot- mm-hmm. podcasters. Three years I've been putting up with this, Jordan. Three Little years. Little vitriol I sent in that yeah. text of three words. <laughs> I mean, that just speaks ill of you, Dave, that you'd be willing to put up with this. Yeah, it's true. I need to respect myself more. I, I made think. sure actually yeah. to put a period at the end of my text just for him to know <laughs> that is serious. Oh, boy. We have to capitalize every other letter. Regardless, uh... <laughs> I'm just wondering if I should throw some fiction into here this week. Uh, just putting you on tilt. Kyle should always feel nervous. Uh, Jordan, I want to know your history with Alfonso Cuaron, the director, writer, editor, producer of this movie, cinematographer of this movie. 
He did all of it. A lot of hats. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I first stumbled across him when uh, Children of Men came out, mm. um, which is, yeah, still one of my favorite. And I think probably the best action movie in terms of choreography, things like that, that I've ever seen. But I wasn't aware of his earlier work at the time. I was actually so excited about that movie. I had no place to put it. I wrote a movie review and just emailed it to my friends. And nice. it was like six paragraphs <laughs> Like the most irritating thing you could ever. Proto Twitter is what you were doing. A exactly. Proto letterbox. Yeah, basically. movie's old, man. Like two thousand six. Six, I think. Yeah. yeah. So everybody, everybody from college, you know, this just got a long-winded email. Yeah. Yeah. This is the start of the damage. <laughs> um, so then after that, I went back because I was a huge fan of uh, Roger Ebert's great movies books. Right. Those were kind of my film education in a big way. Uh, he did a thing about uh, Itumama Tambien, uh, yep. which. Is a completely different movie tonally, but the one that Very he made right yeah. before them, you know, it's just a fun, dirty sex comedy that kind of teaches you a lot about Mexican history in between. Mm -hmm. It's like the greatest teacher of all There's time. There's some parallels between that and Roma, to be honest with you. There, there is some Oh, carryover. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I love that. Like, that is one of my favorite movies. That's the first movie my wife and I ever watched. It's a movie so sexy that we're still together. Really? Oh. Um, Wild. Okay. My first day was X-Men. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> just as sexy the leather you know it's true though yeah it depends on the scene that you're into i suppose <laughs> and so what he did like okay so we have itumar tambien he did uh the little princess i know that was another early film that he did which i still haven't seen um, i have seen that but it was like 25 years ago so my my memory of that is pretty fuzzy yeah a lot of his early work i get the i idea that he's kind of a journeyman director who mm -hmm. then found a voice later as opposed to you know some of his contemporaries like uh guillermo del toro who's uh you know right from the get-go like the devil's backbone and stuff had this very unique voice that he was then able to bring to hollywood i feel mm -hmm. like quaron learned his chops in hollywood and then was able to start telling personal stories after that to your point i mean Itumo Tambien I had watched many years ago, I think probably because of a Roger Ebert review, just like you. I was like, I want to search out this movie. I was trying to find like non-English films as a teenager to, to go and watch. And that was like, I was not expecting this. You know, you see like a, a teenager masturbating in like the first scene. I'm like, ah, this is not a movie I was expecting this to be at all. And the close up of it hitting the pool you is do, something yeah, that, you know, in North American see. cinema, we don't. Well, I guess Mexico's North America. Anyways, we don't see it a lot up here in Canada. The pools yeah. are frozen. But then I remember very vividly him being announced as like the director for Harry Potter 3. I'm like, how is that going to work? <laughs> I just cannot make that compute in my head. Like, oh, yes, uh, Warner Brothers saw Itumama Tammy. Like, yes, yes, Harry Potter 3 is what he should be <laughs> on here next. Which kind of ties into that whole, you know, the Hollywood chops that he mm -hmm. had. And then being able to apply that to something a little more personal. And then Gravity, I was kind of mixed on. Like, yeah, you seeing and Dave it in a are mixed. In a theater in IMAX, it's like such a visceral film. You know, it really is kind of a roller coaster, and it's a shame. I don't think people will be able to appreciate it, honestly, unless there's like an IMAX 3D re release. Because I then went back and watched it at home, mm -hmm. and I don't like that movie. I've decided, <laughs> I've settled mm -hmm. on not liking it. Yeah. I went and saw it twice in theaters when it was in IMAX. So <laughs> that's how much I liked it uh, at the time. But yes, I have. To your point, I've never watched it at home, so I have no idea what that experience is like. It's uh, It loses a lot of its gravity. Dave, how about <laughs> yourself? What's your history with Quaron? Uh, I don't know. You guys are naming these movies. I mean, Ch Children of Men is an excellent movie. I was All-timer for that. me, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I burnt uh, 
I burnt some laser grooves on the DVD. I watched that so many times when I owned it many years ago, uh, which is a weird movie to watch more than once because it's fucking dark. So it is, but there's there's hope at the end. I think that's, yeah, the, that's a a, the trick that happens. Gravity, I also pretty lukewarm, but I watched it on Netflix. So uh, yeah, I don't go to the theater on on his phone. So the optimal viewing experience. No, but uh, <laughs> I do have a kid, so I like nine volume, which also doesn't help atmospheric <laughs> films. Right, and then no, I've never watched uh, E2 Mama. What is it called? I know this name. Tambien. It's End Your Mother 2 is the English title. Yeah, never seen that. And I didn't know he directed a Harry Potter movie, which I think is hilarious. Good. Yeah, so I, I kind of have seen films of his. As is a classic theme, I don't really connect films with people who make them. So uh, I'm learning that I've liked stuff he's made before, which is... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the inverse is like I start to follow certain people corwin has turned into one of my guys one of my people i just my, like following his career okay it is a little fascinating i know dave you don't care about awards or anything like that but there are do they call them the three amigos i think that that's what yeah. the the title is, no, is i think they have said that they can call themselves that but we shouldn't call but them we that. shouldn't call them that yeah yeah so there's Coron, Guillermo del Toro, and then uh, Alejandro Inoritu, who are three friends. Two of them are from Mexico. One is from Spain. I forget how they that actually works out. <laughs> Regardless, Inoritu's got to be Spanish, right? Guillermo yeah, I can't remember Mexico's how it works. This is me being a stupid matter. white Canadian. But uh, them being super good friends and them all winning best directing Oscars, like bang, bang, bang. <laughs> like they all won them oh. basically back to back. Inoritu did it. Twice, like in two years, he did twice back to back, and then Quorum won for Gravity and uh, for this movie, and then Guillermo gets in the middle for Shape of Water. So in a five-year period, all three of them get uh, Best Directing Oscars, They're and all good uh, two of them get it twice. So maybe Pinocchio will get Del Toro back on par. Is it good? Has someone seen um, it? It's fine. I haven't. I don't know. Oh, that bums me out. Okay. <laughs> This is my hot take about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. That's the full title. You actually have to say it every time. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is... The stop motion is great. I think it's actually some really great animation. But my hot take is is that everyone keeps talking about the music and how good it is. And I think it's awful. I actually think the music in it is bad. Like the songs that the, they sing are, are bad. Um, but I'm apparently the only one on the internet who thinks that. Because I keep seeing reports about how good the music is and i do not like it you become very opinionated in your old age right maybe it's like hating on it, the favorite i mean you, you have the a wrong camera and now you, you have you... a separate <laughs> podcast about musicals so yeah. clearly you're gonna have opinions yeah as a musical like if you're just looking at that level the lyrics are junk like they're well, just junk not just musicals he's obsessed with one one writer Person of musicals who so happens to be the best writer of musical theater i'm just time, saying it's a little bit bias forming right yeah you don't sure love enough. musicals you love musicals no, by I, stephen sondheim no i like both i like mm. both i reached okay. out for a flight to japan and you, did, you yeah. came through for me so I you, you know what three... i will not not uh, dunk on your sondheim love at this mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. uh what were we talking about oh yes <laughs> We're talking about Pacific Overtures, the uh, the Japanese show that Sondheim wrote in the 70s. Stop. You're just embarrassing yourself now. Yeah, I guess anything else we want to say about this movie here then? Dave, I think you're the one who has not seen this before. Am I no. correct? Yeah. Wanted to? We're not interested in it? Or what was your position at the time? No, when it came out, all the big hype and I'm a... I love uh, black and white, so the idea of a competent director taking on that project was exciting. But that's not a movie that, uh, like, this is my big 
thing. Uh, my wife is not a, a cinephile. She'll watch a movie if it's fun, and you can't pitch Roma as a fun family watch. No. Right, even if you don't know what it's about, you just look at the even the poster, and you're like, "This is not <laughs> something like, okay. that everybody's gonna." It's a family crying, clutching at each other. Yeah, this is so, not gonna end well. So, set on the wish list, and then often when I do find time to scurry into a corner with my phone, I watch weird shit like Alice in Borderland. <laughs> just really fucking, you know, you got to go full perversion and people chopping each other in the face with swords. Because uh, uh, why would I? spend two hours by myself why do you make fun of me for liking horror films and you go and watch as like a as a wind down for the day people getting macheted in the face well we did learn my use of the word horror was probably too broad actually it was not too broad it was like too specific you thought it was only slasher films yeah so i used the word too broadly because i made it seem like i hate it all yeah, gotcha. Jordan, you though, like you were saying before we started recording, what or we're saying like this was your Marvel film, like you were researching it, like knew exactly what was going on. What was what about it of the making of were you so excited about? Well, I, I think it was just piece after piece. Like I was excited that he was returning to a Spanish language film after Itumama Tembiev. And then uh, I'm a big cinema nerd. So the decision that it was going to be black and white was very exciting to me. It was going to be digital and it was going to be the first big release shot on an Alexa 65 camera, which mm. has a really big sensor, three times the size of the Alexa that shoots most Hollywood movies. And that he was going to DP it himself when he usually works with Lubezki, who's mm -hmm. I would consider one of the top three cinematographers in the world. Um, actually, can I sidebar really quickly here? Yeah, do it. Back when I worked at the camera store, uh, Lubezki was shooting The Revenant in town. Yeah. By the way, should you, should you just pause for a second? That is the actual name of the store is The Camera, the store, camera store, not just yes. like just a random camera store he was well, working Well, the thing at. is, Cal, I'm pretty sure people outside Calgary actually know that. It's got yeah, quite a true. lot of uh, notoriety across the country. I mean, not specifically with film nerds, so no. maybe there's not quite as much crossover there. Mm -hmm. But uh, so he comes into the store and the director I work with all the time, Levi Hallwell, runs over and starts talking his ear off like, dude, you're a legend, all that. And I coward i've never mm. had like any kind of like intimidation by a celebrity or anything like that has never really faced me like we were just at a like event and jason momoa was there and i'm like i don't know he's just a big guy but in that moment i <laughs> i, I could hid take him in probably. my little video cubby and as he was leaving i realized that i was loaning levi my criterion of itumama tambien which was sitting in my bag that i could have walked over just like could mm. i just get signature anything like that so this is my great regret in life is i have to through some process bump into him again have three coherent sentences and then fix that um that's my well i hope that happens for you someday maybe uh the Stop Revenant them. 2, more <laughs> Revenant, will start filming here. <laughs> Barrier and scarier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, anyways, I was very excited as more and more details came out. And I don't know if you remember the trailer because there you had no idea what was happening in the movie. Mm. It was basically like a visual montage, some gorgeous music. And anytime I would travel anywhere, I would just have my phone out like, Hey, I haven't seen you in a few months here. Watch the Roma trailer right now. That's how I said hello <laughs> to people. I was so excited by it. I just think it's still a stunningly put together piece, even on its own outside. Oh, the film. I think honestly, this is about the time I stopped watching trailers because I felt they were giving way too much away, so I prefer going in mostly blind to things. You didn't so. feel it. It's by design, yeah. but that's a whole other thing. So I just, I'm, I'm just saying that, so I don't know if I've actually ever seen the Roma trailer. 
So it's, now you I need mean, to go and seek it out. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like a mood piece on its mm. own, which I think more trailers should definitely return to. I love that format. Uh, but yeah, it was stunningly beautiful. I was really excited for it, and then they announced it was going to Netflix and was yeah. not going to be shown theatrical Correct. in Canada, which bummed me the fuck out. Yeah, I want to talk about that specifically for, for two aspects. So as a little bit of a backstory, we'll get into this more when we actually talk about the, the kind of the history of the movie. But this is really the start of Netflix going balls deep into trying to get an Academy Award for Best Picture. Like they were gunning for it from this movie and for the next five years have one or two movies nominated for Best Picture that are being released onto their platform. But this was number one. They put such a push onto this and could never seal the deal. They could just never get it across the finish line. They would get Best Director a, a couple of times. Pay the best right picture, people. They, would never... they didn't pay the same people Apple did. Well, that's right. And then Apple swoops in and gets it on them. Like that, that's, what, that's the story of this. And now Netflix has no movies nominated for Best Picture this year. Like they if kind of just was... got out of the game. If it was three times as feel-goody as it mm -hmm. is, then I think they would have really had a shot. But this is not, you know, a movie that'll make people jump up in their seats. Well, me. But I wasn't <laughs> even in a theater with other people. I had to watch it at home on my couch and jump up in my own seat, which is not nearly as dramatic a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is correct. It's a good, in, it's a good image, though. It's a good image. <laughs> but it's, I guess my question, I'll pose it to you first, Jordan. Does that impact you for yourself? Like seeing a movie first on a digital platform, whether it's Netflix, Apple, Amazon Prime, does that impact how you feel about the movie? This is different from most movies because I was really excited about the technology they were using to create it as well, mm -hmm. right? So at the time, I don't think, no, Netflix wasn't even streaming 4K. So I was no. watching like my phone resolution version of this movie which was shot in a, you know, all, bigger than IMAX format compared to film. It's 65 millimeter, is that? 65, correct? yeah. 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 So yeah, I felt like I was not getting an ideal viewing experience and it was screening in America. So it was like, do I just buy a ticket? Uh, so when this movie came out on Netflix, this was like a premiere night for me, which I think is a big part of why I had such a strong reaction to it. There was no going to the bathroom. There was mm. no getting snacked, the doorbell, none of that. No, kids are in bed. And just sit down and watch it just like a, I was a in a movie. You put on your front door, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Don't push the button. I was almost maybe a little cold about it with my wife. Like, we are yeah. watching Roma and we are going to treat it like it is a real movie and we are going to sit there. And if we have to go to the bathroom, we're not going to pause it. I don't care. Put this, this is, popcorn in your mouth. This is cinema. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, <laughs> wow. Spartan, kick your kids into bed and you're good. <laughs> So after it came out, because I had a lot of people who watched it, I was, my reaction was a lot more positive. And I do mm -hmm. kind of liken this to, you know, some films that are, like, even the last time I was on this show uh, for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I said, like, that's a movie you don't want, you want to sit in it. Like, you have to sit in the mood, uh, top to finish, or it really doesn't play properly, or movies like Lost in Translation. Sure. You know, if you break that spell, they don't work anymore. And I really feel like this movie is that. I mean, if you, you know, pull out your phone every time there's a really long tracking shot going either left or right, you're going to lose everything, that, every spell that this movie is trying to create. Yeah, I have to just speak for myself, having watched it a second time this week. I remember being kind of mid on this movie, to be really honest, the first time I watched it. And this time it worked way better for me. So I, this thing I knew what I was coming in for. And I think I just started just noticing... lonelier. <laughs> I just think I started noticing Jesus. things 
that I hadn't seen before. Awful friend. You are an awful friend, Dave, and you should feel bad. Um, yeah, I just I started noticing things more. I think it is a movie that you do kind of need to like really just engage with, which I know is a hard sell because it may, then makes me sound pretentious. Like you have to watch the movie to really understand the movie, but it is true for some. Some you have to. Yeah force yourself to engage with and not just passively watch. But um, I guess my question to you, Dave, I know that technically you have not watched this movie yet. Do you feel that it does change your your impression of a movie if you see it in a theater versus at home? I don't know. Yes, I know. I'm losing the nostalgia and this bias of uh, the idea of a theater because I've been, you know, spending so much time at home watching everything on small and smaller screens, uh, not often by choice, that I thought it would be exciting. Like Kyle is taking me on two dates, right? Green Knight and Dune. Did we watch anything else yep. together? No, nope, those are the two. And I got to be honest with you, like Dune was amazing. Green Knight, we got food poisoning, as everybody knows. But we did, uh, yeah. when I bought Dune, and I watched it on this iMac I'm on here with these cans. I actually liked it better because it wasn't blowing my fucking ears out with this overwrought sound system. And uh, there is something for sure about being in a theater where everything is just so over the top. But like when we go to the Globe to watch, uh, what was the last one we watched? The Liquid Sky. Liquid Sky. <laughs> Fuck. I mean, that's not a big, big screen. You know, relative to where we are, that's like a 50-inch television, yeah. honestly. I've been pretty medium. Uh, but to Jordan's point, I've always been a movie guy in the sense that I think movies either need to hook you that way or you need to give patience to a film and not do two things at once. And I think that's a culture that's changed uh, quite terribly uh, by watching things at home. It's in the theaters too. People are fucking surfing their phones in theaters too, uh, assholes. I think that people need to realize if we're going to keep watching movies uh, that have meaning and intent like this one definitely does. uh, You know, yeah, like Jordan said, just close the fucking door, hang the sign fuck off and just sit in it. And if you don't like it, it's fine. Like you can leave, but don't make me stop watching it because you're flicking something beside me. So this is definitely one of those kind of movies. We've talked that way about Stalker. Like we don't necessarily like Stalker. That's a great example. But you sit in it and you're like, I can't turn my head because I know I missed something fucking weird. And after it's over, you're like, I don't know if I'm better for it, but it was an amazing experience. (laughs) But you had to sit in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I guess my other question here, I like, I do kind of miss though to this whole point. I kind of wish I could have seen this in the theater at least yes. once. And maybe it will eventually be released in that way for like a 10-year anniversary or something. Yeah, learning it's a special camera definitely piques my curiosity. Because it looks... I don't have 4K Netflix because uh, right. my Apple TV is too old. But it still looked fucking clean uh, for even a streaming film. This thing is beautiful. So, so, so one uh, of the things that I did this week was on Netflix, a couple of years after this was, re- was released, they made a documentary about the making of Roma, which is, to be really honest, is basically just an hour-long conversation with Alfonso Cuaron. <laughs> like, it's just him talking about a bunch of stuff, and then, like, they cut away as he's talking, but really, it's just him talking for an hour. But he goes into that, where his his biggest goal was, like, yes, it was very early on that he wanted to make this black and white, but he intentionally said, I do not want this to look like a film made in the 70s. I want it to look like it was a movie made in 2018 that happens to be in black and white. Which I have to say, he does nail that look. (laughs) I don't think anyone's going to confuse this with like, oh, this is a movie from the 70s. Yeah, exactly. And we're starting to see that more and more. I think that's becoming popularized. Like, I love filming in black and white. I try to do an episode every year that way and not Mm -hmm. put on a bunch of classic film filters and vignettes and things like that. I love black and white because immediately it is an unnatural way to view the world. You know, it feels a little bit like a dream state, things like that. 
-hmm. it doesn't have to be nostalgic. It can just be unnatural. And I think that can be really powerful. Like the lighthouse is the same thing. You know, they're not trying to make that look old. It's a very clear, gritty black and white look. To that point, though, this is just another slight digression. I hadn't really thought about this, but any movie, I don't know, I'll just say basically in the last 25 years, we'll say that has chosen to be filmed in black and white is a period piece of some kind. I just wonder if someone would decide, like, Mm. I am making a film in black and white that is taking place in current day. You know, one of my favorite pieces of TV in the last little while was the Master of None episode in Italy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. And that one, I mean, they're riffing on the bicycle thief, but they used, you know, a very cam shot at black and white. And I think that's, you know, something that I would love to duplicate at some point. I love the look of that. I think uh, Jordan will know this uh, as much as anyone, but one of the things about film and photography is that color creates context. And so I think when you intentionally shoot black and white, you have to be so confident in your content that you can make the shapes work. Whereas, I don't know, I I think you have to be pretty brave as a director in a story that you truly believe in to want to take away almost, they're not cheats. I mean, Color is beautiful, but, you know, having to worry about whether it's the right uh, palette and whether this is orange enough and all this shit, it's like, it's interesting. But Jordan also knows that color looks different on black and white depending on its tonality. So, I I don't know if you have insight on this, but I'm amazed. I want to know what colors they're actually wearing, that everybody looks so clean in this because it wouldn't have been random clothing. Like, everything had to have been measured to to a perfect promix because... I don't I know will, those things. I will get into that in a moment, Dave, because it is buck wild what they yeah, did. It has to <laughs> for be this. I, you can't. I don't know. Like when I take pictures and if I convert them to black and white, I got to do a lot of post because uh, shit starts getting in the way of each other. So, well, this is part of the reason that he shot it in digital. Is so you know if you shoot black and white film, you have to have everyone wearing the right costumes and everything. You know, use color filters on the lens to get the contrast ratio you want. So at least he was able to take some of that away. But it was interesting if you look at the monitors on that BTS footage. It's being shown in black and white yes. with a very similar look to the movie. So uh-huh. they're trying to get it all right in camera. Uh, one thing I think is really important to mention, and you brought it up in terms of uh, color, can really guide an audience's emotional reaction to a scene, is in black and white, that's done just through exposure. You know, darker scenes are generally more intimidating and things like that. And everybody talks about, like, you know, he direct. he was the cinematographer on this movie himself. The camera movements and stuff are very much his signature but what Mm -hmm. he did a great job of is the motivated light if you watch this Uh, all the light is coming from a place that it naturally would occur Mm. but it's giving you the darkness that you need to you know emotionally in the scenes that should be dark the theater Um, scene is fucking crazy i was bending my brain trying to figure out how you light that (laughs) (laughs) yeah all that all that. It's so impressive. Yeah. I was going to save this, uh, but uh, that documentary, the whole thing goes and then the credits are, are playing. And because it's on Netflix, it doesn't immediately go to like promoting the next thing that you should watch. I'm like, that's weird. Why are they not going straight away? So I waited a little bit. And sure enough, it's like 30, 40 seconds. They have this one last thing. And I don't know who it is he's talking to, whether it's like a kid actor or just a young person like as an extra. But he's literally telling them, it's like, this is how you actually light a scene. He actually was taking them around. It's like, see this person standing there? See that glow and halo that's coming from the backlight? You always want a backlight to give texture and contour to a person that's standing there. See if you turn them around here and show them this way, doesn't look as good, right? So he's actually telling this young guy how he would actually block a scene and how he's blocking that scene at that moment. I think 
that is really cool that this is oh i have to watch that now yeah him <laughs> just like helping out some young guy that just happens to be on set so one last thing i guess before mo- moving on here there's one thing about it being released onto a streaming platform not in theaters we can have that debate i guess all day but there is also something that i think that seems to be missing here because it is also locked to netflix this is not available on any other system you cannot rent this on youtube or on itunes you, the only way you can get it is on netflix or if you buy the blu-ray isn't that isn't that par for the course now i guess i know i, I well this is what i'm just gonna say is that this is i know indicative of where the world is currently going to where everyone has their own like bit of a, a walled garden going on it frustrates me a little bit to an extent it's like sure have your streaming service with everything i just feel like you should have it at least available to people to rent on another platform otherwise you're like really cutting off people who might want to watch it but it's like i only have three other streaming services i don't want to pay for yours yeah i mean i know it was very contentious if criterion was even going to be able to release this right because i believe it's the first netflix i believe uh, you're right yes yeah and people were yeah wondering for a long time because we want to see it in better than streaming quality and it was not available which that, is that that is also the thing too netflix I, it's either the only or one of the only things netflix has actually put onto a disc too so people who do like physical media and want to save their media or you know want to access this but not pay for netflix had no other option but to pay for netflix again to dave to your point like if you don't have the 4k version like you don't have a a box that will let you do that but you do have the blu-ray player that will do it then the the physical disc is the only way to do so unless you want to go buy a whole new (laughs) streaming service i'll just add one anecdote because uh you know i'm talking about how i don't miss theaters that much before i moved here i started getting into buying hi-fi stereo equipment and trying to build a home theater right and it's a bit of snake oil so i was like going to these fucking hole-in-wall stereo places and buying these really strange components and then and they lift open their like trench coats and try and get you to buy a transistor (laughs) and start uh, doing uh, some kung fu with no pants on i uh, came here and i had to sell off a lot of stuff doesn't Mm -hmm. fit into a condo and then Dre, Dr. Dre released, tried to release a streaming service that had uncompressed yeah. wave files. That was Tidal or was it something else? Yeah, I think it was Tidal. So I read this review online. This guy's like, why does anybody need this? Like the data rate's fucking insane just to listen to, you know, a so-called CD quality audio. And he'd put a test on his website and he, you could play three tracks, one at like 128K old school MP3, one at uh, variable bitrate, whatever we use, AAC, whatever the codec at the time was popular, and then one in this uncompressed. And I got it wrong every single time. And then I realized I'm too dumb for this. I don't care. Just give me Spotify, give me Netflix. I just want to see it and uh, it's good enough for me. So when I meet experts like Jordan, it is exciting. I want to see like what a fucking top end cinema camera can do, but at the same time, it's fine. I watched it on Netflix. It was I know. good. <laughs> you, you, use this, you use this example all the time. I just know like on my TV, I don't have the greatest TV. I have a TV that can output 1080p. That, that, that's the most it can do. And even on this film, like there's certain scenes where it's like, ooh, that's crushing the blacks a little bit. Oh, the or like pixelating them a bit. Dodgy. It's like, yeah. it's like uh, I don't know if that looks the best. I still get like a general sense of it, but it's like, I'm still not seeing this in the pristine way that I would prefer to see this in well and i mean the reason he went with 65 is there's so many wide shots with super deep focus and Mm -hmm. i love that it kind of reminds me of um uh what's the french comedies uh with the deep focus um it'll come to me in like a half an hour but that idea of just we're going to give you a big frame 
Let your eye Inspector wander around. So I think <laughs> yeah, that's Pink that's Pink exactly Pink. it. Yeah. Oh, this is gonna drive me crazy. Uh, the guy who did Mister Hewlett. Oh, okay. Anyways, I gotta get off it. Um, but that is why he chose. I think this format is you really want to pick and look at all the details. And generally, See when you go to larger and larger formats of negative, your area and focus is smaller and smaller if you're close to the camera. And he used it in the exact opposite way. Wide lenses, shot with the focus at a distance, big, deep depth of field kind of a Citizen Kane look. And again, I think that would really be benefited on a big screen where you're yeah. actually moving your eyes mm. around from point to point. My favorite example is when they first go to the you know, like festival and they've got the guy getting shot out of the cannon really small in the yes. background. And you don't even notice when the shot comes up that that is happening until they're announcing it. Things like that, I bet would play so mm. much better on a big screen. I, I think I just come down to, just I know a this, bigger the, TV. This, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is always the debate of like, uh, um, physical media and stuff like that. And like, I am the first person to say like, I have reduced so much of my footprint. Like, I think I have, maybe a dozen <laughs> blu-rays or dvds and have like the movies I, like i care about the most dave is out of the game completely but uh, we see this more and more happening with uh there's a bunch of streaming services here recently that have been like yeah we're just not going to stream these movies yeah. anymore the ones yeah. that they own literally, and tv yeah. shows like and there's no way to find them they never release on physical media they're not on any other platform they're just gone and you cannot well, I, watch them. I worry about that with Roma because yeah. its only reason of existing was so that Netflix could get an Oscar. Mm. It didn't pan out. How many people are streaming it, honestly, at Netflix at this point? Well, the three people, people, people this week. Criterion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if that movie disappeared, I think would be criminal, even though, you know, clearly Dave was less enthused than us. But I, I think it's no. still an important piece of cinema. I don't know. Aren't all black and white movies boring? Yeah, it's tough. You know, we, we come across so many films that are, for example, preserved in the Library of Congress in the United States, although who knows how long that country lasts. <laughs> but like these formats, you know, you buy a 4K Blu-ray, you know, honestly, how long before that player doesn't exist anymore? We True. put a lot of weight into physical objects and, and rightfully so, you're right. I mean, if this movie disappeared, that would really fucking suck. You know, there's so many movies like that where you're just like, you can't find a physical copy of any of these things, but we just ethereally know that they did exist, but, you know, knowing the last 20 years that you've seen this film. But the flip side, and this is not a, a positive argument, is they're dumping so much fucking content on you right now. Yeah, there's like true. thousands of TV shows and movies a week that it's not going to matter, sadly. And our mm -hmm. hope maybe is that someone will take this, be inspired by it and give us something better because... Uh, you know, these things are not long for the world, unfortunately. No, which is yeah. which is why, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. I'm totally stealing this comment from someone else. But whether whether you like Martin Scorsese or not, even if he never made another film or you hate every film he's ever done, the fact that he has taken it upon himself to preserve so much cinema, like he puts on these things that last 10,000 years, apparently. Like, he's really digitizing things and uh, not just American stuff. He's going, like, around the world and trying to capture, like, the history of, like, every country's cinema for, with his uh with his preservation project so something cool <laughs> that he has undertaken he's a legend so i, I do want to jump into yeah reactions to the movie and individual scenes i sure. think we really you know it's easy to get caught in the technical because it's such a technically impressive movie but i don't want it to be looked at you know as just a a technical you know. marvel exactly let's do this here then let's go and take a quick break 
And then when we return, why we don't have any sponsors? <laughs> I know, but I have to put that in there so that I know where to insert this into the episode when I edit it. Someone doesn't edit these episodes, Dave. I do. You don't. We are going to take a break. The more we watch, the more fun I have because it makes me realize how much harder this is for you. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Roma. All right. Well, Jordan and Dave have gone off to discuss. I don't know portraiture and other bullshit stuff so they're not here right now i'm here right now though to tell you about some things that you need to know about specifically organizations and people that help this show continue being what it is which listen folks we're trying okay we're trying first and foremost kyle and dave versus the machine is a proud member of the alberta podcast network locally grown community supported the alberta podcast network promotes and supports alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with alberta based businesses and organizations this week we're brought to you by the edmonton public schools open house they've given us this audio clip so let's just go and listen to that now get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school go to edmonton public schools open house Meet the staff and ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs. Explore your options and find the school that feels right. Find event dates and learn how to make the most out of your visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. We're also brought to you this week by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. To learn more, you can go to ecfoundation.org. All right, well... Hey, Jordan, Dave, come on, let's get back to the microphones. My acting is superb. Okay, so we've sat down, we've watched Roma. We have to think of a little bit of a scenario just in case people maybe not, don't have Netflix, can't watch this. Jordan, let's say that uh, the three of us have decided to go and take a visit to Mexico. We've taken a road trip down to Mexico. Ooh, it's a long trip. Is this an Itumama Tambian type situation? Because <laughs> who's the oldest of us? Uh, yeah, I don't know if we, uh, that is a... There's a quite a menage a trois that's going to be I, happening I, I, I between digress. us. Go ahead. Um, the joke is lost on me. But please yeah. do not send this in your fan fiction. Uh, <laughs> the, um, we've stopped at a carnival. We've seen the person like shot out of the cannon. And a young man runs up to you with the Criterion release of Roma. And asks you, Jordan, what is this about? How, how would you answer that young man? Uh, I would say that it is about the struggles of a lower-income woman in Mexico at a time of huge political upheaval, mm -hmm. uh, where it's solely looked at in terms of how that's impacting her personal life as opposed to what's happening to the country through the brilliant lensing and direction of one of our masters. I thought I was your master. I think you're right. I think we, I want to go into like particular scenes uh, because this is not necessarily like a super plot heavy movie. Like it is just a series of things that happen instead of like a specific narrative that's running through the whole thing. So I guess just a quick overview, Jordan, what were your impressions this time watching this movie? Uh, well, the things that really stood out to me more than the first time, the sound design, I think I was really paying a lot more attention to. And they do so the end of the movie is where it just 
locks off a shot and you just hear the sounds of a city mm -hmm. and on a static shot it's incredible how immersive i actually found that although i was watching it with headphones this time which i hadn't done the first time uh, it really stood out to me and the second thing is the performances because i do really the first time i watched it i was kind of like oh they're bringing back kind of an italian neorealism thing i was gonna bring it's it up it of... feels very fellini uh, in this movie <laughs> well it, you guys talked about the bicycle thief and bicycle this thieves, i would yeah. consider like a sister film to that because i believe it was mostly non-actors I certainly didn't recognize a lot of the names. most of them are the uh, the mother is a trained actress but okay. uh, the the main actress yeah this is her first film has never acted before yeah and she is unbelievably good and raw. like it's she's so closed off in the first mm -hmm. even half of the movie I would say she's kind of impenetrable as to how she feels about all of these things even when she's got like kung fu wang in her face she's a little <laughs> bit inscrutable in that moment can but, I just uh, say though it's a good penis yeah. I think to that, uh, I loved when she finds whatever the guy's name is, and then the, the luchador uh, kung fu masters getting them to try to stand on one leg. Yeah, she can do it, it, right? What a fucking yeah. amazing moment. And that's to your point, like her character is so balanced and cut off. But I mean, I, I'll just make one addition to the synopsis and maybe context of this film. I mean, she's not just poor, uh, she's indigenous. And I think that's a it problem for me at the end of this movie is. Uh, you know, the classic colonial lens problem. So uh, I think it made some of the narrative a little bit more dramatic at first and then disappointing for me at the end. But yeah, it, she's she's great. It's uh Well, this is, this is again, film. my bias. I did not actually realize, this is how dumb I am. I have to, I, this is so embarrassing what I'm about to say. They all look the same. Just say it. No, no, no. I wasn't going to say that. Asshole. I understood yeah. that there was different classes. <laughs> Even from the first time, I understood like the different classes they were mentioning. Uh, she was from a different area. I actually did not realize that there was three different languages being spoken mm, in yeah. this film, which is very particular. And Corwin again goes into the documentary talking about how he wanted to show off uh, white Mexicans, this other group that I can't remember the name of, and then the indigenous population and how they were all coming together very explosively in the early 1970s when he was growing up. And I never really keyed in that it's very specific about language is so important going through this film, so... Yeah, there's actually differentiations in the subtitles mm -hmm. to yes. let you know. And that's something I paid a lot more attention to this watch as well, is how isolated mm. the housekeepers are from the wealthy family, um, you know, mm -hmm. even speaking a separate language to themselves, uh, which I think really helps with the, I mean, if I were a Spanish speaking person, I think that effect would be much more apparent mm -hmm. to me. Yes. Uh, where this time you're kind of watching how the subtitles come through there, but it, it does really help. Like she is different. From these other people and i think that's a really smart point when i say less fortunate but yeah persecuted person yeah just to the, put the fine point because i don't want to dance around it what was it that was frustrating to you by the end dave so i i've done some light well, reading. i did or didn't like it i guess is really what i'm asking you about the movie well i mean that's pretty reductive i mean i, I guess yeah. if you want to go that way i'll say that i think he deserved to win best director i don't know if he won best cinematographer but he should have won that the screenplay is good but it's hard in a foreign language film to understand you know the nuances of what qualifies as a best screenplay but i think as a film as a narrative piece by the end i didn't know this i wikipedia it that it would be so autobiographical yeah. But this is a story told by a privileged, like we would say white in North American, but a Spanish, privileged Spanish speaking, uh, mm -hmm. upper middle class family. And we follow- here's the, here's, the, here's the wild thing though, Dave. And again, this is again, 
I thought the same thing, but everything that I I read about this is he's not upper middle class. He is lower middle class. If you're not indigenous, you're... <laughs> I know. I, I, I get it. I, but, I, I understand. But so we're, we're watching the story about this young woman, and I love that all of the political upheaval and this broken family are happening around her, and the camera's always just moving slowly with her life. It's fucking gorgeous. Uh, but by the end, you know, like... There's a trauma moment for me because uh, our son had some difficulties when he was born. So that scene is fucking gutting. Yeah. And then at the end, I don't know, this idea that her salvation would be getting a hug from a rich, rich white family is a little, for me, kind of a miss. I felt like we skipped this possible discussion of even where she comes from and then her mother's lost her village. And, you know, we have this opportunity maybe to find uh, some type of balance or redemption somewhere else. But because the story comes from someone who isn't in that culture, I mean, I think it's right to not make it up. <laughs> but uh, I just felt like by the end, this, when the spell was broken finally for me, um, it had this little flat note. And I, I don't think it's fair to say that it's, I, I think it's a beautiful movie. But I could understand why it didn't win Best Picture. Because it's not just a downer. It just feels a little bit, I felt a little bit hollow to me just right at that last scene. I, I think I read that scene quite differently than you do. I don't think that that's the spell breaking about her being embraced by the family maybe it's in part but it's her literally facing death to save those kids like it's i, I wrote it as a joke honestly on my letterbox reviews like the only way to uh, get past a deep emotional trauma is to have a second deep emotional trauma because that's basically what this is kind of proposing where like she risks she risks death she doesn't know how to swim but she goes out there to save those does kids. she risk death or does she conform to the responsibilities of her class like is is this love or is it obligation and th and this is the problem I think when we do uh, reflections on tiered class society, and I'm probably more sensitive to it being Asian because Confucian fucking ideology mm. is sick, but it's how I'm raised. And so often, if you watch an Asian film and somebody does it, it's not out of love; it's out of uh, piety. You have to do it, otherwise you bring shame to your entire clan and everybody in your family is a fucking loser. And this felt like that to me a little bit. And I I think I'm wrong about it, but this is how I ended up reading it, and it sure. made me. Uh, really conflicted that that would be the sort of uh, pinpoint at the end of this film. It is implied that she is a little bit religious uh, throughout the movie. And I think what sold that ending for me is her saying like, well, I didn't, I, I forget the exact word, but like, I didn't want him. I didn't want the um, kid. Like I yeah. hoped you. Yeah. And she's convinced that it's because of that, that her baby died, which is this huge wound in her. And in some way, yeah, I do think she's looking for redemption. If you just read that as like she's doing it out of obligation, I don't know if that's what would come to her mind. But it's almost like, you know, I lost a kid, I saved a kid, am I square now? I, I can't, you cannot just completely dismiss the class aspect of it because it's deeply yeah. there and I think it's deeply focused on. I, I think it's more religious. I honestly think it's more of a religious yeah. reading that I'm reading into that where it's maybe that doesn't help. <laughs> anything but that's what i felt she was compelled by was her her religious upbringing rather than like oh i have to do this because i'm the maid of this family i don't know i think of other films that have these types of characters who are always in the background they're never the central part of the story or if they are the central part of the story you never see them outside of the actual house yeah they're always in relation to the family inside of the house and we see great sections of this movie off with her boyfriend going on that journey to try and get him to like be not a deadbeat dad <laughs> and uh 
But the rest of the kids, like, they love her. They hug her. They kiss her. Like, they're, she's involved in the story. Yes, she is working for them. I get it. And there's there's class in there, too. But this is not, like, I don't know. But I don't see it as, like, a family dog that, they, the that they have a relationship well, with. I, there's a reason, I think, why there's a dog in this film that's shitting mm -hmm. everywhere. And it becomes a focal point of this uh, other father's derision. I think it's intentional. I think, I mean, I don't know if it's because of her acting, but there is an intent to show that she almost rebuffs the children's affections as yes. a matter of course thing. She's not part of this family and she knows it. And it's very intentional, particularly at the beginning when she sits, she's doing the chores, she sits down, gets to watch one punchline of the sitcom, and then she's casually brushed aside to get some fucking tea. And she doesn't fight. It's not, she's not uh, resentful. There's nothing. It's just, okay, now it's my turn to leave this house. Uh, sorry, this room and to move on to my next responsibility. And I, I think that... It's not religious. It's 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 racist. I don't know. It's it's culture. It's class. It, there's something more problematic, which I think is intentional, and it's something they want to talk about. But I don't know. I even the religious thing. You know, when they have the little soiree under the mansion, you know, that's not a Christian soiree, right? So I think reading that as a North American and thinking that this is some uh, thing, it, I think it felt like it was meant to be more pagan. I mean, even the curse yeah. of getting spilt on, et cetera, and seeing the uh, egg break, uh, or I think it was an egg, whatever. Yeah, her cup breaks. Right. Uh, right. Right after she says, like, may you have a healthy son and a great 1971, right. uh, neither of which really pan out. <laughs> great. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of religious, I don't mean organized or anything like that, but a superstition, uh, which Spiritual. is, again, emphasized in that moment. She doesn't drink the drink and everything goes wrong. Uh, I think that is definitely an underlying current, for sure. Uh, what scenes worked for you? Visually, for everything was, I mean, I... I don't remember a single point where I wasn't staring at this movie. <laughs> you know, like from, uh, I love these slow tracking pins. I, I know this will bother a lot of casual viewers, but this, if you ever want to try it, <laughs> this is a great movie to try. Like we watched Tokyo Story and I think we got a little bit bored with some of the so-called tatami shots, et cetera. But this thing is so intentional in its yeah. slow movement. Which is a very Koran thing, I have to say. Like he's yeah, like he, the master of like the long sustained shots. No, but one thing that's really interesting is Lubezki didn't shoot this with him. And one thing mm -hmm. with Children of Men, they're long manic takes like you sure. can't believe the camera is ripping through these environments now in the background like in the bts because i haven't watched all of it it looks like most of these are actually motorized there's no person operating the camera oh, so almost like programmed do you think yeah it absolutely keyframed uh through a scene which is something that was pretty easy to do at this point yeah i actually don't um, know if that's true um just very briefly too i will, I will say this like you've seen the documentary i've seen the I documentary so i know that's impacting my score now but i don't care the more i learn about film sometimes i like it more when i know how it was actually made and put together i think what i keyed in more this time is like yes her journey but i think i i really like what they call them like magical realism stories so this mm. one like just is like right up in my alley i think more than anything else and to me i could <sighs> Um, and Coron says this in the documentary, although I have a different interpretation than his intention. So how this begins and ends, it both begins and ends with a, a plane flying across the sky. But one is a reflection looking down and one is a camera angle pointed up. And I do think that that is, again, an intentional of the journey. One is like head bowed down and one is much more like uh, confident. Really? Is that that's how you read it at the end of the that's film? That's how I read it. My God. But that's, that's actually not what his, that's no, not what his intention there's was. There's no way say. that could be what this movie is supposed to tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not an uplifting film about the spiritual power of this woman. 
This is a fucking tragedy, man. <laughs> I know. You always are. That's also because you so don't have down. kids, Kyle, right? Well, maybe. And Jordan does. And yeah. uh, I mean, that, that scene is a and, scene. And you'll know, right? If that happened to us, it doesn't matter what you do after. You can save 50 fucking children. It is not an uplifting film. You will always be broken. That's just, that's why it's shot that way. And he's so intentional about how horrible childbirthing was in the 70s the airplane's not in the sky because everybody's fucking singing and dancing as a chorus line you know it's well i, I think that was not my point either i'm not saying that this is like an overjoyous like film i just think that there's a movement of the character you're seeing her progression from one state to a different state and that's what you're seeing from something looking down to looking up there's i mean there's, with, there's a difference there within the family she has moved up yes. even though if it's it's not because there's no longer a husband in the picture her kids have loved her all along like you mentioned that scene where she has to go make tea but also the kid is like no i want her to stay here and she's like i will be right back the kids love her but the mom is so indifferent to her like she's when she's within earshot dunking on her uh basically cuz she's not a person to her but by the end of the movie She's even though it's solely by risking her own life to save her kids, she's earned the mother's maybe not full respect. I think she's always going to be a lower class citizen in that sure. family. But I think, I mean, but think the she kids are is gonna... more of the fan. Like maybe she's the aunt that the mom has thinly veiled disdain for at that point. Yeah. You know, she's which, which I think you can see again. This is autobiographical, but um, the maid, I guess, that was in Coron's own life. He casts her in E2 Mama Tambien. That is the maid that is in that movie. Like he yeah. kept her in his life even into his adulthood. It wasn't just like he discarded her once he became of age. He he knew knows her, still talks to her, is still in her in her life. So I mean, I think there is a difference there too between what the mother and how the kids look at her in relation to the family. Yeah, if you take a look at the film as being told from the point of view of the youngest boy, not the older one, who's kind right. of a you know bit yeah. of a dick. Then that also really tracks because it's his mother and other siblings recognizing what he knew all along, which is yes. that this was his real mother figure. This is my problem with the lens. I think you're right. But I, to be cruel, could this have worked as a Lassie film, right? Because the journey that she goes on and the resolution at the end is like a pet that's ignored to a pet that's loved, but it's not a human being in their eyes. Sure, the kids appreciate her but they also treat her as a fixture in their house they don't understand her humanity she's pregnant and everybody's still getting her to fetch their fucking shoes she loses the child and they're like just come and wait on us but you don't have to fold our laundry and then when she does it there it's like oh but it's because you love us there's something about <laughs> servitude for me that's such a fucking it's just me but i take it so personally that yeah, by I the guess. end it, just, it yeah. twisted me out um but i i think jordan you're right like I felt that this was uh, Corrin's experience and he's writing about being the youngest boy and, you know, the fact that the youngest boy is a storyteller and make concocting these great fantasies tells me that he's going to be the, the so-called filmmaker creator mm -hmm. and not the shit uh, who throws golf balls where the fuck it is through a window or the other guy who's 
you know, psychotic. I I don't know. I I think what prevents it from becoming the Lassie movie is that the journey that we actually get to see her go on, like she is not just like something that's in the background. We actually get to see her outside of the confines of the family. Plus that sex scene would have been really awkward. Like when she goes back to visit her family and stuff, I think was absolutely essential. Uh, And there you see a different side of her too, which is when I started really paying attention to her her acting. Yeah, you see more of that. Um, Um, What I wanted to, what I was actually leading up to before we got diverted is that when you see the behind the scenes, this is a a thousand percent an art film, 100%. This is an art film, but made as if it were a Hollywood blockbuster. Um, This is a very cheap movie. We'll get to the budget here in a moment. Like the, the budget is not that much, but what they did in this movie is bonkers to me. Do either of you recall the scene where she's just walking across that busy Yes, love it. And it just keeps going. You're like, they're going to run out of set and they don't run out of set. That is a set that is not on location. They built that from scratch. And that is bonkers to me that they went out into the desert and built that from scratch because that exact place, they couldn't like go in and like change it to make it look like 1971. So they just went out and recreated the whole thing to make it look like that square from 1971. How does that not eat up budget? Because of Mexican labor, maybe? I know. I I think it's because they filmed in Mexico that it was just so cheap. It had to have been. Class. Well, I'm sure there's insane subsidies for him. Probably. Because he's like, you know. That's true. Mexico's probably biggest international celebrity. Um, National hero. And then they they painted a bunch of stuff just gray and stuff so it would film more better uh, with with the cameras that they had. Uh, And then as far as like the tracking shots go, it was like heavy duty on vehicles, like going back and forth. The part in the ocean, which is my favorite scene when she goes oh, out. To the, it's amazing. Basie Corwin always has in the last three movies a scene where I'm like, how did you do this? Mm-hmm. Like, just how did you do this? So it was this big, long track that went out into the ocean that they could track back and forth. And then they had professional divers with the kids who mm-hmm. just before the Push camera them. comes out, they drop down, throw the kids back up so she can grab them. But she can't swim. Like, she doesn't know how to swim. Yeah, the like, literally, the actress does not know how to swim. So I'm like, that is some balls <laughs> to, to put it into a gender thing. Like, to go out there when those waves are crashing and hitting against you, like, that could not have been easy. But as far as dialogue goes, not much of this was written down. Essentially, he would go at the beginning of every scene and be like, okay, you want to grab the ball? You don't want this kid to do that. He separately, he would take them out separately and be like, okay, you, what, what you want to do is this thing. What you want to do is this thing. And then Figure he would just up. film it. <laughs> and so what would happen though, it is like a Stanley Kubrick thing. Almost that one scene where they're going and firing guns 62 times. They shot that scene because what would happen is they would start to go like, Oh, I want to choreograph something else. You you're standing too still. You have to go from here to here. Okay. Let's try it again. Oh, now you need to walk slower and you have to walk a little bit faster. Okay. Let's do it again. Everything is period accurate. He went to like his aunts and uncles and everything and grabbed furniture and albums and stuff and went and bought secondhand stuff to go and redo everything. So everything is period accurate as well as the clothing is period accurate. It's just it's just wild the amount of time and effort they went into doing this into things that might not even show up on screen, <laughs> which is remarkable. Well, I mean, the long takes are such a gamble because you can yeah. make a movie a lot cheaper, you know, like one take, you just mm-hmm. shot 10 minutes of film, you're, you know, one twelfth done to your movie uh, in that one take. But yeah, if it goes wrong, you can wind up Set spending up an again. absolute fortune. I find it so interesting when Children of Men came out. I was like, this is the long takes bring this action to like a level of intensity. I've yeah, never that car seen scene a movie to this before. day is like, I can't even understand how this was made. The running through the rubble as well, like yeah. because the camera's moving with it the whole time. It's so incredibly in- like I've seen that movie 
I've mm-hmm. seen those scenes probably 50 times each a piece, and I still cannot look away there. But what I found so interesting is we started seeing other directors using that for action, but very rarely do you see it just for like emotional intensity. Yes, Like there's I agree. not heavy action when the riot breaks out, but that it's going on outside and we can't cut. We don't see what's happening when that starts and the camera starts panning through the room until the guys enter the room. I found that just like... I- I mean, a horror movie unsettling. Yeah, I could not agree with you more because this is something that I've also noticed. I was also like this big fan for a long time. Like, oh, long takes. Long takes are the best thing. But they have to be intentional too because anyone can just push record and start recording. But if it's not interesting while you're filming a long take, it is such a drag to watch that film then in that case. And I feel as of right now, I'm sure there's other ones, but the two that come top of mind, the people who really understand how to use long takes and actually frame things, actually... Mm -hmm. I actually can think of three, which is Coron, Spielberg, and um, Soderbergh and at times yeah. can actually use long takes super effectively because they keep framing things in interesting ways it's as it's like a one long take. Yeah, it's a lot of choreography. Yeah, exactly. It's a dance with the camera, uh, and they all have that. And the, the other example where there's no action is, you know, the birth scene is so upsetting because you can't look away. And the, I've seen this movie. I knew it was coming. And the first time, it absolutely destroyed me. The second time, like, I was way more impacted by it the second time. It is one of the most heartrending things I've ever seen. Uh, He did not tell her that it was going to be a stillborn child. So she's reacting to that in real time because she did not know that that's what the end product of that scene was going to be. All the doctors and nurses are actually doctors and nurses. So that's why they know exactly how to, like, move, do it, like, come and talk to her. All of that was discussed before she comes into the room. But like there is that level of, again, authenticity in that scene that is so gutting for me. Oh, her her reaction to it. I mean, I think it's almost cruel to do to mm-hmm. an actor, especially a non-actor. Yeah, it, 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 it works out for me, even though it's it's hard to watch. Um, He then like comes in, he's crying and then collapses onto her and, and hugs her after that scene, which is really fun. It's not fun. It's fucking disrespectful. This is the whole problem with privilege, Kyle. It's a fucking joke. He... He made this woman suffer to the idea of a trauma of a, of a stillborn baby, and he hugged her and it was okay. Oh, fuck off. You shouldn't have watched that behind-the-scenes movie. It cheapens it. It's a fucking joke. Now I'm just angry. Oh. Like, my kid was born. I watched it. He had no fucking life, uh, life signals. I had to watch him push a fucking button, okay? 20 people jumped in this room. My wife has passed out. If some fucker hugged me... I would have gone to a fight that day. This this is the thing about this film that makes me so irritated, man. It's too big. It tries to do all these things, but it's not something to be laughed at. It's not. That's what makes it beautiful, but at the end, it's so unfulfilling for me. It's like, we're getting excited by the technical details, which I think are amazing. But hearing that they would do this to this young woman for the sake of a movie, that's Kubrick-esque. It's fucking disgusting. It is. I mean, right? I don't know. I, I don't know. It's a problem for me. There, There is some simulation that goes on here. Like, would it have been better if Hattie told her that what was what was going to go on? Or is it still... I don't know. I mean, I don't direct movies, right? And it's hard to, like, build things with this much emotional impact. You know, I was crying watching that. Yeah. But I think that there has to be a line somewhere. The price we ask to pay for entertainment. It's worth the cost. Uh, it's pretty upsetting to find out that they filmed a woman genuinely getting upset because they had a false cadaver of a newborn baby to make a, a scene. That's There's something really twisted about that, man. And it's not fun. It's awful. You know? I, I don't know. I think it's awful. I, I, I just I really don't like that. 
No, I get that. I'm not, I'm not here for you to enjoy that on any level. So the, the, the rescue at the beach is my favorite scene. But just as a composition shot, this is a great example of like reveal is going back to that furniture scene where the yes pan over and we see the uprising. But then we pan over, we see a gun enter into the frame, and then we pan over and see that it's the other character that we've already met before. I just think that's a great way to like reveal a character and say so much without any dialogue actually being spoken in that scene. About the long takes, this is what I think is so polarizing about the movie. Well, one of the things. The initial part of the movie might be, you know, it is a tough set because it has to explain that visual language to you. Uh, like I remember the first time I saw it, my wife like gave a big sigh when it started doing the thing where she's panning around the house, shutting mm. off all the lights to establish the geography of the geography of the house, but also how his visual language is going to work in the movie, so it can pay off, you know, in those three big set pieces. It's the antithesis of exposition, right? This is a masterfully built movie, and I'll apologize again for getting upset. I just. Uh... No, I get it. It's again, as a parent, it is an incredibly raw nerve. Yeah. Not that I've ever gone through anything like what you have. No, it's uh, uh, yeah. I think from a film and a yeah, an experience perspective, what I love about this work in terms of its final being is that everything's intentional. And if you love film, you notice it from the opening shot, just how the water's mm-hmm. washing over the tiles. What a yeah. fascinating thing. Uh, the moment a the car comes in and rolls over the first piece of dog shit. It's, uh, yes, I know. It's so just cinematic. A, yeah, it's great. Ugh. I've always said that dog shit is the most cinematic of substances. To put a button on another comment I had made before, the uh, Corona's uh, version of why there's the two planes that fly over is just because there's lots of planes that fly over Mexico City and he wanted it to be like just a return into the hustle and bustle. It happens in the middle too. I can't remember what the scene was, but they, they're, yeah, the camera's pointed up. But did he, put the planes in or they just happened to be there? Those are actual, they had to wait for the planes to show up okay. and then he filmed them. That's yes. fascinating. And their frames, they're always going the same direction too, yeah. which is odd. Here's my dumb, 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 dumb question. Why is this called Roma? Oh. Isn't at, that the neighborhood yeah, that they were in? At the end, there's a title card that comes up saying something oh, about- it, Okay, because Rome is usually referring to like Rome. And yeah. so I was just wondering why it's all been called Roma. Right, Jordan, like at the end, there's a title card saying that he- That's what I, I, I don't know if I caught it this time, but I seem to remember yeah, yeah. when it first came out, like, oh, that's why. Okay, yeah, that it's, kind of makes it's sense. right at the end. I think he dedicates the film maybe to his nanny or- Yeah. I, I, I'll, I, I could watch it again, but I will watch it again, <laughs> damn it. Before, before Netflix <laughs> blocks it off. That's right. All right, let's do some quick backstory here then. So this opened up on August 30th, 2018 at the Venice International Film Festival, and then was released on Netflix on December 14th, 2018. Currently is rated 4.0 on Letterboxd, has a 7.7 on IMDb, a 96 on Metacritic, and over on Rotten Tomatoes. From 407 critics, it has a 96%. And from 5,000 plus users, it has a 72%. So you see the split between critics and and viewers. Uh, Like I said, it is available on Blu-ray as part of the Criterion Collection. And currently, you can stream it on Netflix. Its budget was $15 million. (laughs) Amazing. I know. (laughs) That's insane. Even with the new technology camera. I have to think this is like a conversion thing. Like 15 15 million American dollars just transfers so much into like the peso to be... 
you can just push it so much further. That's what I'm guessing. Because it was only released for one week in Los Angeles and New York, its box office was $5 million. So it... (laughs) Not bad for a money. week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Its plot description from IMDb is a year in the life of a middle class family's maid in Mexico City in the early 1970s. Uh, shock upon shocks, again, because it was not released into movie theaters. Uh, no tagline for this movie. <laughs> so we will uh, not play the game. But it stars Ilitza Aparicio as Cleo, Marina de Tavira as Sofia, Veronica Garcia as Teresa, and Jorge Antonio Guerrero as Fairman. Of course, we all know that Cinematography is by Alfonso Cuaron, written by Alfonso Cuaron, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, uh, we usually say the top four things that the cinematographer did. His last thing was not since the 1980s when he did something for a Mexican TV show. So he has nothing really for cinematography. He's just looking at the camera like, what is mm-hmm. this? Yeah. Can I ask you a question, Jordan? I mean, from the film world, what does a director actually do if... He has all these specialists doing the things that we appreciate in the final gloss, right? Like the cinematographer. The director, yeah. his only job is to answer questions. <laughs> That's it. And I'm, I'm not joking at all. It's, it's a whole bunch of people coming up to you saying- What like, should we do next? Yeah. Is it, th- is it this color or is it this color? Like I can move the camera this way, but we're going to see this tree. What do you want to do? That's what the director's job is. It's the final set. Like uh, the best representation of it, I think is the Wes Anderson MasterCard commercial where it's just walking and everyone is just asking him endless what questions as he goes. That's what a director is. Yeah. So this is why I think we, we had this conversation in our poltergeist episode. Why I think there's always been that thing. It's like who actually directed this movie? Yeah. Steven Spielberg. And it's probably just like Steven Spielberg was like, he answered the questions because he yeah. was producer and on set and Toby Hooper wasn't answering the questions. So he's yeah. like, yeah, put it over there. Put that light there. Put that thing over there. Like the best cinematographers have their own tone and their own visual language. Do you think that that's something that they push onto the director or the director chooses them for like they must have i'm just interested because this is a very i think it can really go either way like i think in the case of lubezki he's a guy who you're gonna get ultra wide lenses shoved in people's faces in very long takes that's his signature style uh you hire him if that's gonna work for your narrative where you have someone like roger deakins who's a real chameleon like his movies look different depending on which directors he's working with he can get you know his cohen stuff looks completely different from blade runner so I think it goes both ways. I think um, I think Deacons is a real collaborator. Where I think people bring Lubezki on if they want his his him look. to him to like enhance the visual language of a movie. Well, that's what I think I, I appreciate about this movie too. Like there is actually very little close up. Like I think there's one yes. or two instances of close up, but otherwise it's like super far back. You're seeing the environments, and I think it's really there to show like I want you to focus on the environment and how the people move through it rather than focusing on the person's face. Well, and that's what's so engaging about that film format is if you have a negative that big, if you get that camera close to someone, then there's no detail in the shot. Depth of field is so shallow. My favorite example is uh, if Beale if Beale Street can talk was also shot on the sixty five, oh, and you okay. don't see the house in that movie. No. It's just crazy detailed close ups of people's faces the mm. entire time, and that's the exact opposite way and the more traditional way to use a large format camera like that. Basically. Kyle, Jordan should just join as a co-host because we needed to know that when we reviewed If Beale Street. Yeah, that's talk. interesting. Because uh, that movie looks fucking amazing. It and does. there was looks a reason so for that. It's not just the cinematographer. There's technology mm-hmm. behind that too. <laughs> well, he chose that format for a reason yeah. too, right? That's the cinematographer's job. Is, really I cool. don't want to be distracted by the environment. I just want to see people's eyes. Have that be your sole focus. And it works great for that. But weirdly, it also works great for 
never seeing anyone's eyes in detail, like in this movie. And I'm just also curious why we don't see directors take the seat of the DP or the cinematographer so so often, but uh, it's well, a big job. it's fascinating you mentioned Sotobro, because he's one of the few who does DP his own films quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, and now Goron as well. So I think as the technology gets a little more approachable, mm-hmm. you know, in the old days, you were shooting to film. You couldn't see what was on there. Right. Now you've got a monitor, so the director can walk over. Like I'm very collaborative when I work with a director. We're both staring at the monitor to figure out right. you what know, to do. Different. I would light things different mm-hmm. than I would with that a person over my shoulder saying, "No, I think we should do it this way." By the way, like could not have two different filmmakers. Soderbergh probably has another movie that's going to fall out of his iPhone here tomorrow. <laughs> and Corona takes like seven, eight, nine years between projects. So, did this movie break him? I don't know. He hasn't done anything since, and he's not rumored to be doing that, anything. Nothing announced either. Like, there's nothing on the horizon for Is him. Is he old? So. Like, he sits in for BTS on the Criterion channel once in a while <laughs> to be like, here's a great Mexican film from 1954. But Late that's 50s, what he's doing. Mid 50s, right okay. now? He's like, young. Yeah, yeah, he's super started, old. Yeah. So, I've told you a little bit, like, this was very autobiographical. This had been in his head for a long time. So, he had, like, a general idea of scenes, but nothing like, I don't need this to be a specific narrative that we had to follow around. Um, and, how we kind of constructed scenes from there. Also wanted to have that naturalistic style. So when he casts Yolitza Aparicio as the lead, she auditioned, but I, I, really, I would like to know more information about this because I want to know why she auditioned in the first place. Because again, no acting training at all, had just graduated with a degree in teaching and then decides to go and audition for a movie, I guess. I couldn't find any information on that. The other interesting hasn't thing- hasn't worked since. Yeah, she's not been in a movie since then. Actually, kind of similar to, um, oh, I'm going to forget the gentleman's name, the guy who was in uh, Captain Phillips as one of the Somali pirates, which he yeah. has been in a few other things since then, but like sparingly. Oh, not to stand on this soapbox again, but I'm pretty sure if she went through that scene of the hospital, she's not going to want to act ever again. Perchance, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think she should be cast in the next Marvel film, Dave. Well, she might be. I Probably will be. <laughs> Eternals Jordan, 2. Now Jordan's sweating. I got upset and he's about to start yelling. Here's the other, <laughs> I think, interesting thing. I think almost essential for this to work. Uh, this is one of the very, very few films in history that was filmed in sequence. You know what's crazy? The last time I was on here, McCabe yeah. and Mrs. Miller is also one of the only examples yes, of that. Maybe I just yeah. want to show up for sequentially shot films. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Weird story, though. Midway through filming, I don't know if you read this, there was a bit of an altercation that happened on the film set. Oh, where a bunch of theft. people arrived and said that they were part of the city and that the crew did not have the right paperwork to film. And Corwin was like, no, we have all the right paperwork to film. And then they were robbed. So people just took money and other knickknacks from them. It's this weird, bizarre <laughs> story. Knickknacks. <laughs> I just watched the trailer for Terminator 2. <laughs> Need your clothes. Right. You. <laughs> uh, I think I said this already. Uh, lead actress was also uh, scared of the beach scene because she couldn't swim. Who would ever want to go into the water anyway? Once filming is completed, Netflix steps in and says, hey, we'll be the distributor of this film. So they were not actually a part of this while it was being filmed. This was Envision is being released in the theaters and then Netflix comes and, and purchases it from them. The, Do we know how much this, Netflix course, paid for the film? Oh, I don't know that. But I do know what they paid for marketing for the film, which is wild. Their first foray into the Academy Awards because they had just had such great success the previous few years of winning like Emmys yes. for like best comedy series and best dramatic series. So this is now them getting the big awards for film. 
Netflix does not release their movies in the theaters, although I should say that is slightly changing in recent years, and I think for the better that they should release them in the theaters for a bit before going onto the service. They say they're going to debut this film on Netflix after like this one week-long run in New York and, and L.A. A big name that we've already mentioned this episode steps into the fray, uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg, who says that uh, I don't think that this should be competing for Oscars if it's debuting on a streaming service. There's already... Steven! I know. There's already an awards category for that, and it's for Best TV Movie at the Emmys. That is... So, he was being a bit catty about this, but um, I don't know. I go back and forth with this. Like, that's technically true. Like, if it is debuting on TV, should it not be up for the TV awards? I don't know. But it's so, not TV. It's a streaming. Okay. Anyway. It's HBO. I, I don't it is. like no. what Sammy Fableman grew up to become. I'll tell you that. <laughs> true. I don't know. I go back and forth with that. I mean, the distinction between what a movie is and what a TV movie is and what a TV show is anymore. So there's no gap anymore for so much of this stuff. But Well, like, is, is Coda Oscar worthy? Is that a oh. TV film? No. I mean, yes, it's shot but, like one. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it yeah. is a TV film. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's like, should it be? Yeah. Anyway, okay. Just money. Um, so they it's do okay. the minimum of putting into New York and LA. Besides going to the Venice Film Festival, though, it also goes to a few other film festivals. But then Netflix decides, yeah, we want this to be our first, like, best picture award winner. Netflix claims that it spent $25 million on advertising. That sounds right. Yeah. It was everywhere. I, it's tough to remember. Yeah, it was on, remember. like, buses and stuff like that. It was yeah. wild. I did see this everywhere. Tell your mom, Roma. <laughs> So yes, $15 million was the budget of the film. 25 was on advertising. Some of their competitors claim that it was probably closer to $50 million. But what Netflix says is 25 Included in this was them trying to buy Academy votes by sending them a six-pound coffee table book, which was worth $175 just by itself. So I want that book. I really want that book, too. I want to see what it looks like. Netflix is very cautious about what numbers it shares. And like, this is like such a degree of salt that you should take with these numbers I'm about to give to you. But what they say is that 3.2 million people watched it on uh, between January and February of 2019. Is oh, how many wow. people watched well, Roma. Well, if it's in the world, maybe. You know, yeah, but what is a watch and like all that stuff? Like, well, I have no idea Mexican what any of that viewership means. alone. And that's a fucking population dense country, man. So. The peak came apparently the night before Oscars, where it was streamed 418,000 times. Or at least turned on is what you're getting. Yeah, at, at least turned on. Um, I know on YouTube, it's five seconds is counted as a view, I think, technically. So I don't know if that's the same on Netflix, but. Netflix used to count that way, but I saw now they track watch hours. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. Now, about those awards, Roma was, I, th I should have double-checked this, I think was the leader that year, but it had 10 Academy Award nominations, including Best Cinematography, Best Original Screenplay, Best Foreign Language Film, Best Supporting Actress for Marina de Tavira, Best Actress for Alitza Aparicio, Best Director, and Best Picture. It would win three of those awards. Two for Corone for Best Cinematography and Best Director. It would also win Best Foreign Film, but it would not pick up the best prize because, of course, the real best movie of the year, Green Book, won. Was that that, that year? year? Oh, it was God. that year. Which, no matter what we think about either film, <laughs> Green Book probably wasn't the choice that year to go with. It could have been another film nominated. Green uh, Book uh, may not have been the right if, if a different film had won, uh, I wouldn't have thought this was Rob for Best Picture, but Green Book's... Mm -hmm. That was Black Klansman oh. year. Two. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Because he lost, Spike lost his mind. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. It's all yeah. coming back now. 
by the way, uh, for and this is still the way for best foreign film, like it was called then, or best international feature is what it's called now. It actually goes to the country. It does not go to any of the filmmakers. So it actually goes to the mm. country. <laughs> Just another little fun Oscar fact for you. This is Kyle's Oscar fact segment. Uh, Corone ties with an f- interesting record, which he ties with Ang Lee for winning two Best Director awards for movies that did not win Best Picture. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. What are what are Ang Lee's? Crouching Ang Lee's. Tiger? He won for Brokeback Mountain and for Life of Pi. Yeah. Oh, Life of Pi. Life. Yeah. But Life of Pi was because Argo was nominated that year and was not nominated for Best Director, so Ben Affleck couldn't win that award. Well, let me let me ask you this quick question since we're talking about your award show. I mean, yeah. obviously, I'm I'm not a, a fan of the idea of Best Anything, but for you guys, my like, Super Bowl tread lightly. <laughs> Super Bowl. Uh, so Jordan's, you're a film film person. Kyle's a film fan film person. What constitutes best picture? Right? Is it well, yeah. the biggest swing for art? Is it a populist vote? Is it well? A this narrative? is this is the thing about the Academy, though, Dave. Is that they don't have a specific thing because they very wildly too from going from like. No, I'm asking you guys. Like, I I don't yeah I don't really care about the Oscars, but how would oh, okay, each of you I decide only go what with is a the, good movie? Like, I, I put this out every year. Like, I share what my what I call my best films of the year, but really they're just my favorite films. Yeah, right. They're the ones who spoke to me the most. So Hot Rod will be. If I'm being, I'll I'll say it up front here. Like Roma is not my favorite movie of the year. Like I'll tell you when we get to those movies, what I consider the best movie of 2018. But if I was going with of the nominated films that year, probably is what I would have voted for. I didn't even look. What was the list? You probably have them all. Uh, I'm trying to remember the time. Green Book, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody. We're watching that next. Yeah. You want to come back, Jordan? Yeah. God, bro. Yeah, there's a, there's a, honestly, this year was a bad Oscar lineup. With There was options. They had options yeah, to choose from. But they, it was a bad year. lineup, I think, for Best Picture this year. Oh, Black Panther was the other one that was nominated for Best like, Picture. What do you think, Jordan? I mean, especially as someone who creates film, like what constitutes a culmination of a year's best yeah, I mean, for me, it's just an emotional response. Like, that's just how much a movie sits with me as well. I'm going to factor into that. But I mean, two years ago, mine would have been like West Side Story, where mm-hmm. usually I go for big dramatic swings. But I sat in a theater and had like actual joy for the first yeah. time since the pandemic started. Uh, so uh, that took that. Although typically, you know, like in the Roma Which year, also bust, by the way, that movie ends in a double suicide. But yes, big <laughs> crowd pleaser. They sing on the street. <laughs> they sing. They're, they're in the windows and then they're on the street. I mean, it's I agree. Great. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this year I'd have to run through the list again, but I'm positive I was pushing hard for Roma because I had, you know, such a huge emotional reaction to the set pieces of this movie. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Which is like, you know, I work on like small stuff at a YouTube channel and things like that. But when you work on it, you're always looking for how everything is done, where this is a movie where you could, I could actually lose myself in it and then spend weeks afterwards figuring out how they're doing it. But I felt the same thing last night uh, watching this movie again is you just lose yourself in it. And I think that's the most powerful and I think that's the thing for me that this has a bit of a step down where it's not like a perfect score. Uh, one of the things for my own personal films I love is that there has to be an element of rewatchability for me for movies. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those are like very heart-wrenching movies, but there's still something that pulls me through. So Children of Man is a good example for me. Yeah. Yes, that is a hard movie, but I enjoy actually the experience of going through it, even though it's a hard movie to get through. Whereas this yeah. movie, 
those scenes are like, I don't really want to live through those again, even though I do acknowledge that they are powerful and really well directed and really well acted. But do I want to sit down in that feeling again? Probably not. I mean, I have watched the water scene yeah. probably a dozen times since this movie came out. As much to just be like, how did they do this yeah. to other people? Um, how would you define it, Dave? Uh, well, it's funny. Hearing you guys, um, Hal and I used to have this rule when we bought physical media that we would have to be convinced we'd watch it enough times to comp the cost of the Blu-ray. Right. So, you know, if rentals at the time were four bucks, I don't remember, it was cheaper than iTunes yeah. back in the day. And it Blu-ray costs 20 bucks. We'd have to ask, like, are we going to watch this five times in a, you know, in the span of the next five years? How would the special features though, Dave? Uh, I used to actually watch those. And then I, I realized, uh, I need to get a life. Uh, no, um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I've fallen like the same Like a dagger time. to my heart, <laughs> yeah. that comment. Wait until I tell you about the behind the scenes of Bohemian Rhapsody, the documentary oh, they made. Man. It's going to be great. <laughs> I have trouble with it and we, especially the last three years, we watched so many films, but you know, yeah, like I love Hot Rod. Hot Rod will never win an award. Yeah. Um, and holds, like I just rewatched Talladega Nights and Talladega Nights holds up really well, surprisingly, you know, Step Brothers not as much, but then we watch Stalker and even though at the end of the film, I don't feel like necessarily happy I watched it. I'm also really happy we watched it because it's just such a cinematic feat that we could be so confused and bored out of our minds, but also not be. It's like even watching Liquid Sky, what a, that's a mindfuck of a movie and and a disaster, but you leave the theater and like we were, it's like we'd uh, I've never taken seen a shot of like adrenaline, that. Yeah, like shaking because you're like, I don't even know what to talk about. So does that make a good movie? I don't know. That's why I think award shows are uh, sus, as my son is saying these days, right, right, sus. But and I think they're, they're not sus, so. You just love the pomp. <laughs> I love the pomp. I love the pomp. I love, I want any more pomp in my life. If anything, you need less pomp. I don't know enough about that particular revolution in Mexico to even understand the context yeah, I, of that I wish one. I did know more. This is, I so think, many, again, a miss for Canadian, I don't know, schooling. Maybe you, it was different in Ontario, Dave. I learned nothing about Mexico in school. No. Like no. zero about no. it in school. And it's like, why don't we learn about Mexico? They're literally in North America. I hardly learn about Canada. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's weird. But um, what I was saying is like that revolution, I wish I knew more about. And the people who are like uh, practicing martial arts, those were real things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that was an actual movement of people doing martial arts. So that was not made up for the movie either. Yeah. There's, uh, I'm reading this book. Uh, it's called Three Tigers, One Mountain or something. Anyways, it's tracing some cultural history of Korea, Japan, and China. It, it's good. It's something that I need to read. But one of the interesting things I learned is one of the first cultural exports in Korea, I think even as early as the 1920s after colonization from Japan, was uh, martial arts. And they were sending mm. out martial arts masters, or no, maybe in the 50s, to uh, act as ambassadors of goodwill. So you do see the encroachment. I think you know, Bruce Lee coming to America to bring Kung Fu is, could right. be argued as some propaganda stunt because they needed Chinese culture to appear here uh, more so than your stereotypical, you know, guys in silk robes yeah. and long mustaches and uh, Mickey Rooney. So, um, you know, I think like it's, it's fun to see that. I also like the idea that they're secretly training to be a revolutionary army the whole time, which right. is which kind of neat. Yeah. Right, which is like a surprise for me, not knowing what was going on, but probably not for the Mexican viewing yeah. audience, because there, there's a political party that still exists that based from like them. Sure, <laughs> that's still a, well, around. 
if you look at any international politics other than North America, it's fun. It's it's not so boilerplate. You know? What I'm actually most curious about, quick digression and then we'll wrap this all up, is um, being the professional wrestling fan that I am. There's actually a deep connection between Mexican wrestling and, and Japanese wrestling specifically. And I want to know if this was the start of it, sort of. Anyways, I, I'm just fascinated more about like that uh, cultural like exchange because Mexican wrestlers go fight in Japan for their training and Japanese come over to a Mexico for their training. So it's like the symbiotic thing. It's like the luchador culture, not super old. Is it from the 60s? Oh, it's very 70s? old, but so is yeah. the Japanese wrestling too. Uh, so that's what I mean. Like they, they, they trade off on, on different things. Anyways, I, it's fascinating. I, I grew up, Kyle. I stopped watching wrestling. Yeah. Well, great. You <laughs> go and enjoy your Eternals watch for the third time. Uh we're done here. The machine said that we do have to wrap things up. So let's first get into Critics' Choice, the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time that this film was released. Uh, I thought that this uh, episode might run over, so I picked very quick things from Rotten Tomatoes. So the positive review was from Nell Minow from awfj.org. That's the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, who said, Roma will be studied for years as a landmark in cinematic storytelling, made even more meaningful because it pays tribute to a character who is usually in the background. On the other hand, wow, he did Dan pick a Sch- short one. That's like- yeah. On the other hand, Dan Schindel from Hyper Allergic wrote, <laughs> "The movie's distance here works against it, emphasizing its outsider's view of what it frames as lower class concerns. Instead of lending her character dimensionality, Cleo's tribulations begin to feel cartoonishly grim." So that was his negative review. Uh, do we think this holds up and is it still culturally relevant? What do you say, Jordan? I mean, I think it holds up like a son of a bitch. I don't think it has any cultural relevance at this yeah. point. Dave? Yeah, I I agree. Especially cinematographically. I think that's a word. Mm-hmm. This thing will be marveled at as long as it's shown, which might be end soon. I don't know. This is going to be a three for three because I actually was going to come here uh, saying the same thing. I thought people were going to push back on it. But yeah, I don't think there is any cultural relevance. In part, I think because it is only available on Netflix. But it's a very artistic movie that most people are not going to go and seek out anyways. But it's I feel like this is one of those movies that like, a young cinephile watches when they're, whatever, 13 or something. Like, oh, I want to go and make this. Becomes a director or something. And becomes a director. Like So in like 30 years from now or 20 years from now, you probably will see some of these things paying off. That's my well, guess. I, when this came out, I was basically like a street preacher passing out pamphlets for people to watch it. And the, no one watched it. And Sir, the this is did, a Wendy's. Could you please? Like if, I, if I want to start a fight, I'll bring this up to my mother-in-law because she was furious with me just for a while it. for recommending stop this. It. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. After she saw the movie, no, she's just like, it's a disaster. Yeah. After she, <laughs> after she saw the movie, you were no longer invited over. <laughs> well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that's what Dave, Jordan, and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also do release videos on our YouTube channel, and if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterboxed page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode, and you can support for as low as $1 per month. That's one Canadian dollar per month. So it's like nothing. That's really sinking. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Let's get to the rating of this movie. Jordan, if uh, your vote doesn't count, but if it did. I'm aware. (laughs) That was made very clear to me before this even started. In a a text. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what, what's our star scale here? Five. Uh, technically, 0.5 to 5 is what you can rate yeah, on no, Letterboxd. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go four and a half. All right. Dave? I think I'm going to go with a four. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Honestly, you were going to go for a three and a half. I thought you were. Oh, it's so pretty. Like, Don't talk them yeah. down to a yeah, three and a half. Four no, is good. I think uh, as much as I was disappointed at the end, I mean, this thing's, this thing's a watch. Okay. It's a watch. Uh, I am giving it a 4.5 as well. I'm actually slightly raising this because I gave it a 4 on my initial watch, but uh, some of the themes, I don't know, sank in. Some of the performances sank in more. So to to ruin the fiction of the show, I watched this actually three nights ago, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since I watched it. It was a much more visceral experience for some reason this time. So Yeah, my second one was intense too. Yeah. But Dave, this does tie with one movie that we've already talked about, which is The Favorite. So would we? Would you rate this above or below the favorite? Below. You're going to be shocked, Dave, but I'm actually going to agree with you. But based on our our precedence of cultural relevance, I think the the favorite has much more cultural relevance than what this movie does. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It makes I, sense I, to rate I it really below. like the favorite. I don't know. I, I know you didn't as much, but uh, Jordan, oh what's God. your feeling Dave about the favorite? Think that I really it. dig the favorite for the but the exact opposite thing is this movie. I love the favorite. I don't. I'm not crazy about the cinematography. Yeah. Oh, look at that! That's See? what Kyle said. Yeah, yeah. But if I had to pick, I would. I would 100% be uh, Roma over favorite. But again, mm-hmm. by like a 0.5. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, it's going to enter our list then at the number three position. So underneath the favorite, above Black Panther. Remember, we've only watched seven films so far. <laughs> so it's not like our list is extensive. Numbers currently. are pretty high already, though. This recency mm-hmm. bias. We haven't we haven't watched a stinker yet. Oh man, Bohemian Rhapsody. If you guys, it's coming next. That was a. I would say, Dave, <laughs> that was a great setup. Let me push this button here. Oh, we're gonna watch Bohemian Rhapsody next week. A, a movie that I actively hate. So I really, really dislike I that will movie. Prepare my five star review. Oh, if you if you come in here and give it a passing score, I will lose my mind. Passing? Have you What's, seen it before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've watched okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Did you I, like uh, it? Uh, I don't know. You know me in biopics, so I I think it already starts at a pretty low number, but I'm, I just love Queen, so I think- Hey, uh, the Queen music is good. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, I'm soft on it. But because that does not make a good movie. There's music. No, I- did, wait, was it nominated for an Oscar? Yes, it was, Dave. And bafflingly, it wins editing. for best editing. editing. For editing? <laughs> and the climax of the movie is they use the exact same cuts as the actual televised right. concert. Well, that's, that's... No, that's not editing. <laughs> it's, it's so mimicry, hard, Dave. Jordan. It's I can put the two on a timeline and match them up. No, it's so hard. You don't get it. It's like, we, we've seen it. But then we have to do it again. I'm spiraling right now. Anyways, Dave, I guess we should um, get geared up for more fiction next week um, to, to advance the storyline, oh, right, right. the rich storyline that we're doing. I'm talking about books so. or something. I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm reading right. a History of Asia right now. But you're talking about our podcast. But you also have like how to write a good story. I see that that's open in front of you. So what's step one? Uh, step one, uh, get off your ass and put something down on a piece of paper. Who, who uses paper anymore? <laughs> I've always said that dog shit is the most cinematic of substances.